Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Nice to be here with you again. And um, let's continue our worship of the Lord, shall we? Let's open our Bibles together. And I want us to open our Bibles in um, 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. And there should be some of these Bibles dotted around if you haven't got one. If you find one of these and you want to know where we're reading from, we're reading from page 1160. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, page 1160, if you've got one of these red pew Bibles, which I'm going to be reading from. And this is God's full, final, authoritative word to all men, women, and children everywhere. Let's read the word of God together, beginning at verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's just bow our heads, shall we? Our Father, we uh, recognize our need for your Holy Spirit to help us understand, Lord, uh, your words which you have given to us, Father, to guide us, to point us, to direct us, to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to appreciate and recognize and respond to his great sacrifice on the cross on uh, behalf of sinners. So, Father, whoever we are, however we've come this evening, I pray that by your spirit you would um, illumine your word for us and move in our hearts, in our beings, in our minds, Lord. Transform us uh, for your own glory, for the honor of your own name. And in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I know you've been looking at two ways to live um, as as a congregation. I know last week that Paul looked at the whole issue of sin and judgment with you. And I know that because I listened to the MP3 to try and catch up. And um, I, know, I know you've learned that, uh, that you, I just want to do a bit of a recap. I mean, I get the good stuff tonight. I get to talk about the cross, about Jesus and, and the good news of the gospel. But I just want to set that in context and just give a bit of a, a, a little tiny repeat, maybe, of just what Paul said uh, last week. Just to highlight what good news we have before us this evening in Jesus Christ. I know you've learned of the past few studies that the human race was made to live under the rule of God in a world that he created in order to glorify his own name. I know you've learned that through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world and a gulf divided man and God. So each person now born is born under the curse of sin or in bondage to it as Paul says. We know that the whole physical cosmos likewise has been affected by this fall from God's grace. So all of us 
the world included, are under the curse of God. We know his wrath, his anger, is being revealed against us. Paul teaches us that in Romans chapter 1. And we know from our own personal experience that what's going on in the world bears this out to be true. We are in a mess as a race, a human race, socially, economically, physically, and spiritually. We are trapped, the Bible teaches, by our own inherent sinful natures. We're cut adrift, the Bible says, without any real moral compass, without hope in the world. And we try and grasp onto anything in our world to give us meaning and hope and some sort of significance. But really, if we're honest, we don't find it. We are completely and utterly lost, according to the Scriptures. And worse than this, if that isn't bad enough news, there's worse news still to come. There is a judgment, the Bible says, to come for our sinful rebellion, for not living under the rule of God as we ought, for going our own way. We will judge for that, the Lord says, that will come at death. For those of us who are unrepentant, we will go to hell for eternity. Eternal, conscious separation and punishment from God. And there is not one single thing that we can do about it. When God's wrath comes fully to bear in this world, there will be no escape for anybody. Judgment Day is coming. You learned that last week. It is coming. And for some of us, maybe all of us, it will be coming sooner than you think. But ultimately, one day, it will fall upon all of us. Now, I worked in Brazil for a few years, and I once saw a tract in Brazil which caught my attention. I'm not saying whether I approve or disapprove of it. You can ask me afterwards. And the tract said this. The front cover said, What do I have to do to go to hell? I may have seen this tract. Maybe it's just me who's never seen this tract before. And on the, I opened it up on the inside, and the inside was completely blank. There was nothing. And it took me a second. <laughs> I'm quick like that. And... Um, I had a bit on the back saying the good news, by the way. It wasn't all doom and gloom. But it caught me. It's quite profound, isn't it, really? You don't have to do anything to go to hell. We're born. We're born condemned, the Bible says. We have to do nothing. Like the film with, uh, famous film with um, Sean Penn, I think it is. We're all dead men walking. All of us. We're all making the long, slow walk to our eternal destruction. And these are the facts, the simple, basic facts that the Bible teaches us about the condition of the human race and the condition of the world in general. Now that's the bad news, isn't it? There's no sugarcoating it. There's no way to make it sound sweeter. Our friends, our families, our neighbours, our colleagues, our children are all in a pitiful and scary place destined for hell 
if they are living outside of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should scare us, shouldn't it? We can dissect it. We can give very capable theological discussions about it. We can run courses on it. But we need to believe it. We need to feel this. And I worry that we do feel this. I work with people who understand their lostness. I I work with people who know, when you say the word broken, understand what it means to be broken. And I work with people who know they're living without hope. Wretches to be pitied in the world. Many of you work with people with a few quid in the bank who perhaps don't have that same sense of lostness. If you walk up to your pal tomorrow at work and say, you're lost, you look a bit confused by that. But he doesn't feel lost. He's got a nice car, a nice wife, a couple of kids, a few quid in the bank. doesn't feel lost in the slightest, but he's lost. People say to me often, I, pit, I, I feel for you working in, in Nidra. It must be difficult. No, I, I feel for you working at Charlotte Chapel. It must be horrendous. Understand the point I'm making, please. I pity a mission field. Proud. Arrogant. Liars, Paul said last week. We're all liars, aren't we? Deep down. Battling against the pride of material comfort. But going to work tomorrow and look around, your colleagues are going to hell. Going to school tomorrow and look around your classmates are going to hell get on the bus tomorrow walk outside the church and look at the nearest bars that just line the road down here tomorrow people laughing drinking socializing their way to a lost eternity is that what we believe that's the bad news that's the bad news but you know what praise the lord there's good news. That's a relief, isn't it? It's not the end of the story. Imagine what a tragedy it would be if that's it. That Paul's last week is the cut-off point, and that's it. Thanks for coming. You're all going to hell. Have a nice life. But you see, God Almighty has provided an escape route for us, the Bible says. But this is the kicker. There's only one escape route provided in scripture for the human race there's only one way that we can be saved from our hopeless condition there's only one way that our sin problem can be fully dealt with there's only one way that God's righteous anger his wrath can be turned aside from guilty sinners there's only one way that we can escape the punishment of eternal hell And in God's great grace and mercy, he's not left us in the dark. He's not left us alone about our situation. And that's why I want to look at a couple of verses here in uh, our chapter. I'm not going to do an in-depth exposition of the text. I just want to look at a couple of key phrases. God has not left us alone stumbling in our own moral condition. It's true, on the one hand, he has handed us over to our sinful natures. And it's true... But he has provided the means by which we can escape 
the punishment we justly deserve, whilst at the same time satisfying his own righteous and full wrath against both sin and the sinners. And sinners, sorry. And that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. So this evening I just want us to answer a couple of very important questions to help us make sense of the cross. Am I going to say everything about the cross? Give me a break. It took Paul Romans, and that's a bit of a read, isn't it? I'm going to pick up a few points and see if we can get to grips. The first question is this I want to answer. Is what happened on the cross when Jesus was crucified? What happened there? We just need to, before we look at what happened, I wanted to understand something about the nature of crucifixion. I mean, such was the Romans' attitude towards crucifixion, is that it was reserved for the worst of the worst. The worst criminals alone. It was a means of showing extreme contempt for the condemned. And the suffering and the humiliation on the cross was unequaled in the world. I'm not sure if it's ever been equaled today. One writer famous writer, uh, wrote this of crucifixions. I see crosses there, not just of one type, but it made in different ways. Some hang their victims head downwards. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch their arms out on them. It was a slow, cruel, and torturous way to die. Make no mistake about that. And the Bible says this is what Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to on behalf of guilty sinners like us. And even more amazingly, Acts 3, uh, 2.23 clearly states, all this was God's set plan before the foundation of the world. So there was physical pain and humiliation as Jesus was nailed to the tree. But there was more going on than that. The cross isn't just about the physical and... Uh, the humiliation, that side of things. No, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 wants to get deeper with people. Let's look at verse 21. Huge verse, huge verse. I do this no justice, but I'm going to have a go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we read, firstly, that what happened on the cross when Jesus was crucified, according to Paul here, is that Jesus became sin for us. You know, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, we read a prophecy about Jesus' death on the cross. And it says this, he became numbered among the transgressors. In other words, on the cross, Jesus completely identified with sinful humanity. He became sin for us. In fact, not the greatest uh, version here, what we are by nature, God made the Son to be. When he hung on that cross, God could not look at him. He hung there as a filthy, sinful rebel. And in that act of turning his face from his Son, Jesus was separated both physically and spiritually from the Father. That's what happened. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, we've got some modern commentators and some uh, modern Christians uh, who think this is all a bit, a bit sick and a bit weird. 
Uh, a bit of cosmic child abuse, as uh, Steve Chalk puts it. And, uh, he, you know, his, his view of the cross has found some uh, fans in evangelical circles. And basically, Steve Chalk hasn't made up anything new, right? He just sexed up an old heresy, all right? His question is this. How have we come to believe that at the cross, this God of love suddenly seems to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? That's, that's Chalk's question. He sees the crucifixion of Jesus merely as a symbol of love. In his words, demonstrating how far the Father was willing to go to prove uh, his love for us. Steve Chalk thinks that the, uh, the idea that God punished Jesus on the cross for something he didn't do is a contradiction against his love nature. I'm going to be polite for a change this evening. You know, that, you know me and Mr. Chalk, I'd like to have a chat with him at some point. You see, the problem that Mr. Chalk has is this. What he's saying flies in the face of clear New Testament teaching. Paul didn't seem to find it unthinkable that a God of love could pour out his righteous anger on Jesus on the, on the cross. Look, turn with me to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 3. This is important. Please turn with me. Again, it's 1,130. 1,130, if you're unsure. Famous verse for many, not so for others. Verse 25, talking about Jesus. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And turn forward now to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Talking about Jesus again. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you've got here, two words are used interchangeably almost. And the word here is propitiation. Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins. I'm not going to get all technical. What does that mean? The NIV said, he atoned for our sins. What does that mean? Well, it's simply this. Jesus suffered and died as a man, and thus became our substitute. Jesus was like us in every way, except he was without sin. Jesus lived under God's rule perfectly, as we should have. And he did what we could not. And on the cross, God's anger was uh, deflected onto him, uh, absorbed by him, if you like, and turned aside from the sinner. You see, the Bible teaches, and I know Paul's been teaching this, is a price had to be paid for sin. And the problem is that we can't pay the price that our sins require. So what happens on the cross is this, simply. At the cross, God, this is why this is 
cosmic child abuse line is silliness. God himself, God satisfies himself on the cross by paying the price on our behalf. We need to understand this. So the cross is more than just an act of love. It's more than just a lovely example for us to follow. The cross does something. It saves us from the judgment that Paul talked about last week. It's not an act of child abuse. God satisfies himself by doing this. God took the punishment. God absorbed the full cost himself. He paid the price our sins deserve. The full anger of God the Father was poured out on God the Son. And that is undeniable biblical truth. And let me be clear about something because people get a little bit confused. God could not and God does not overlook our sin. He doesn't write it off. It's not like it's not, like it's not a big deal. This is a big deal. This is a massive, huge, cosmic deal. God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He didn't allow it. His holiness and his justice would not allow it. Jesus paid the price in full. Simple as that. So what chalk terms child abuse is actually the greatest act of sacrificial love in the history of the world. Christ, the sinless one, became, was made sin for us. But you know, something else happened here on the cross. Look at the end of verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. The end of verse 21 as well. Excuse me, sorry. In him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did Jesus absorb the full wrath of God on the cross, but Christians also receive his righteousness. Number one, he became sin for us. But secondly, on the cross, for those who believe, we receive the righteousness of Jesus. It is imputed to us, Paul says. This is called double imputation. Not to be confused with amputation. You can pull that one out of the bag if you want to impress or bore your mates, whichever one. Probably bore mine. Um, Point is this. Our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. But until we repent of our sins, until we trust in Jesus Christ, we are condemned before God. But the moment, that very second, that we confess our sins and turn to him in repentance and faith, our sins are not counted against us anymore. Instead, I mean, this is is amazing stuff. I mean, I love this stuff. Instead, an exchange takes place where our guilt and shame are covered by Jesus' righteousness. And now, God looks at us as sinless and perfect as the Son. 
But as I always say to my people, how about them apples? What's more amazing than that? That's the gift of grace we receive if we reach out and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He became sin for us. We receive his righteousness. But the second question I want to ask is this, why bother? Why go to all that trouble? Well, again, verse 19 makes it very clear what his reasoning was. And it is this, to reconcile us to himself. That's what this is all about. For those of us who have confessed our sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, things have changed. We're new creations, Paul says, with new motivations. We now live to please God instead of ourselves. We now want to serve him as our master. Instead of chasing our own wants and needs, love replaces hate, service replaces selfishness, pleasing God replaces pleasing ourselves. We now seek to live under his kingly rule as we should have done from the beginning. In Jesus, we've been reconciled to God the Father. And that is the essence of the gospel message, reconciliation with God. It's about guilty sinners coming back into a right relationship with God. And Paul is clear in these few verses from Corinthians that the whole work of reconciliation and salvation is from God. Not from man, but from a loving and mighty God. People say to me, the Bible just made up stuff. People wrote some stuff about God and you just made it up. Well, if I was making up some stuff about getting right with God, I'd make it a bit more simple than this stuff going on right here. You know what I'm saying? I'd be making it. You pay a fiver, we're done. That's because this is God's idea from start to finish. You must always remember that a a cosmic and eternal transaction took place when Jesus Christ went to the cross. Galatians puts it like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And what really happened at Calvary was God's great act of reconciliation in which he brought humanity back to himself through the sacrifice of his beloved son Jesus. So you see, the cross is the antidote to the bad news, isn't it? Because it's there and only there that our sin problem has been dealt with. It's there and only there that God's wrath has been propitiated. It's there and only there that we can be saved from judgment of eternity in hell. You know, we're going to sing a song in a minute called It Is Well With My Soul. I hope we're going to sing a song in a minute. We're not going to sing a song in a minute. I want to sing a song in a minute. We're singing a song in a minute. <laughs> okay. I asked for the prices paid, but I meant another one. It says the same thing. <laughs> All is, uh, right, I've confused myself now. We could have sung a song in a minute. <laughs> called, All is Well With Your Soul. Do you know All is Well With Your Soul? Of course you do. Yeah, you know, you've been around a long time, you lot. And um, I I, I love that hymn. That's my favourite hymn. I don't know how I got it wrong. But the point is this. 
you know, all might be well with your bank account, guys. All might be well with your studies. All might be well with your career. All might be well with your love life. But is it really well with your soul? Are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you taking as much care and effort over the future of your eternal soul than you are over the future of your pension plan? You know, if you're a Christian here this evening, there's only one way you can leave. Rejoicing. Praising the Lord for his great and wonderful gift, eternal life given to us, undeserving rebels. And yet, what love he has shown to us. Our salvation, all of him, every last glorious, wonderful little piece of it, all the glory is his. All the honor is his. His idea, his plan. You know, we're saved this evening because of Jesus and him alone. I, ch- I just want to say, look, keep trusting him. Keep walking with the Lord Jesus. I'm going to end with a little story. Theologians tell a story how to illustrate, uh, just to illustrate how Christ's triumph over the, uh, the grave. I'm not going to impinge on Paul's good stuff next week. I just want to tell a little story. I want to imagine, uh, imagine a city under siege. And the enemy that surrounds that city will not let anybody and anything leave. And supplies are running low. And the citizens are fearful. But you know, in the dark of night, a spy sneaks in through the enemy lines. And he's rushed to the city to tell the people that uh, in another place, the main enemy force has been defeated. In fact, the leaders have already surrendered. So the people don't have to be afraid any longer. It's only a matter of time before the besieging troops receive the news that head commander's gone and they lay down their weapons. You know, we may be like these people. We, we, similarly, we may be surrounded by the forces of evil, disease, injustice, oppression, death. But the enemy was defeated at the cross. Amen? Things are not the way they seem to be. It's only a matter of time until it becomes clear that to all that the battle is really over. And for the Christian, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What happened on the cross? Jesus redeemed his people from the slavery of sin. Jesus defeated the power of the evil one. And through his death, he paid the penalty for sin and brought sinners back into a right relationship with God. We worship a beautiful saviour. The cross reminds us of that. It reminds us of that. If it were to end like that, as I said in the beginning, it would be a tragedy. But we know it doesn't end like that. Death could not keep him. He is risen on a day of remembering our fallen in the world wars, countless wars in our history. Do not mistake the fact, or do not mistake that in Jesus, Christians worship a dead hero. We don't worship a dead soldier. We worship a risen Savior. 
who not only died for our sins, but who rose again triumphant over the grave as a sign and a seal that God the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And I know that next week, Paul is going to be bringing home the bacon as he looks at that. Let's stand and sing and worship Jesus. <laughs>